Good evening and welcome to From the Frontline. I'm Hunter Combs with Dr. Hammond in the studio. We're going to be discussing when is it right to fight? Now today we're obviously, the world is facing a major crisis as Russia has invaded the Ukraine and we want to talk a bit more about these principles for uh, how we as Christians view warfare and when is it right to engage in warfare. But Dr. Hammond, maybe you'd just like to sort of give your take on what's happening right now on the world stage. Well, we've got a lot of friends in Russia. I, I've got many personal friends who are Russian and Ukrainian, and we've got Christian friends, missionaries, who are working in Ukraine right now, who we're in touch with and praying for. And we know missionaries work in Russia too, and South African farmers who are farming in Ukraine and farming in Russia. Hmm. So um, there's no way that you can be unengaged from this. And I must say, I feel very torn, having spent a lot of time in Eastern Europe with Bill Bathman and been in many of the living rooms and homes and pulpits and uh, all the different uh, churches of, of Eastern Europe. This is tragic. I mean, bear in mind hmm. that the largest number of Christians in Europe, Bible-believing, born-again Christians, are in Russia. Hmm. And the second largest number of Christians in Europe are in Ukraine. And the third wow. largest is Romania. So bear in mind, when we're talking about Russia and Ukraine, we're talking about countries with millions of Christians. Hmm. And Russia and Ukraine have come a long way since the dark days of communism. They are sending out missionaries now. So both Russia and Ukraine are missionary-sending countries too. Hmm. And so when we're thinking about this, we should first of all remember we're not talking about some entity. We're talking about brothers and sisters in Christ on both sides. Mm. And so I think we've got to be guided by love for our neighbor and the goal to seek first the kingdom of God and to fulfill the Great Commission. Mm. And I do fear that some of the irresponsible and very volatile things being said and suggested around the world are not considering that, that as Christians, we are concerned to fulfill the Great Commission to make disciples of all nations, and that includes Russia and Ukraine. Hmm. and the countries around them. So this is a very serious moment, and obviously we must be praying for our brethren there, uh, but Christians are expected to give some sensible suggestions as to what the solutions are, and I don't hear much of that right now. I hear a lot of highly irresponsible uh, war drum-beating, rebel-rousing, inciting people to get more uh, irrational. And as you know, it's often said, the first casualty in war is truth. Hmm. And often it's like truth has been lined up in front of a firing squad of the mass media and they're slaughtering the truth with a whole lot of generalizations and exaggerations, sometimes total fabrications, which distort the situation. And you don't actually understand what's going on in the war if you listen to mainstream media. And I know that because I've been involved in eight wars and I was brought up in a country at war. And to listen to the garbage said about, for example, the Rhodesian War, the Southwest African War, the war in Angola or Mozambique, hmm. or in Rwanda or Sudan, uh, so often it's absolute nonsense. And when you hear what people around the world are saying, and they're taking their talking points from the CNN and BBC, and honestly, as people who've been involved in some of those wars, you look at it after and think, well, that wasn't very helpful, was it? Hmm. Yeah, and I think a lot of the conservative news stations as well, they aren't giving very helpful advice either. Now, when you say there are Bible-believing Christians on either side, are these um, your typical Protestants? Are these Orthodox Christians? Is it a bit of mo both? Both, definitely okay. both. No, uh, overwhelmingly, most of the Christians in Russia are Russian Orthodox. Okay. Most of the Christians in Ukraine are uh, Ukrainian Orthodox, mm. uh, but amongst them you've got your more evangelical wings, but then there's vast amounts of other evangelicals, Bible-believing churches there too. For example, the largest number of Baptists in the world 
is in America. The second largest number of Baptists in the world is Russia. Third largest is Romania. Fourth largest is Ukraine. So mm. just take Baptists. There's millions of Baptists wow. uh, in Russia and Ukraine. And uh, then, you know, you can start going through other evangelical churches. So there's huge amounts of, of Pentecostals and Assemblies of God and so on. So um, let's not just think everybody there is Orthodox. But anyway, many of these Orthodox Christians are dedicated Christians too. And I think of a book written by Richard Vormbrandt. If this was Christ, would you lend him your blanket? And mm. that was the title of the book. And uh, it's that he was a Lutheran. Richard Vormbrandt was a Lutheran. And he was in a prison cell with a Romanian Orthodox minister. And they were both suffering for Christ. And he had some animosities and doctrinal differences with him. But when you recognize this Orthodox brother is also suffering for Christ, hmm. he did lend him his blanket, by the way. <laughs> um, but I mean, the, the whole the whole point of, of the persecuted church is when you're in the same cell and you're suffering same persecution, denominational distinctives do sometimes uh, become less important. Obviously, doctrine is super important. We should never try and downgrade the importance of, of doctrine. But when it comes to suffering for Christ, we should be loving our neighbor and whatever we did unto one of the least of these, our brethren, we did it unto Christ. And so in the light of Matthew 25, the parable of the Good Samaritan, let's think on those sort of lines. But just in terms of Bible-believing Christians, uh, Patrick Johnson of Operation World informed me in this mission when he visited here a while ago, uh, he asked me, where will you find the largest number of Bible-believing, born-again Christians in Europe? And I hesitated for a while and he said Russia. Hmm. Not percentage, but number. And hmm. uh, second largest, Ukraine. Third largest, uh, that one I got right, Romania. But the other hmm. two, I would never have guessed. Hmm. That's amazing. And so as Christians, as we think about warfare and we think about engaging in warfare, uh, it's very serious because we know we have the Ten Commandments, you shall not murder, and we know that you have this foundation of that commandment, that God is the author of life. He's the source of life. As Acts says, um, it says, uh, the, Peter says, you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. But Jesus is called the author of life. God is the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power. He's the giver of life. He's the source of all life. And so we really need to think very carefully about how we actually engage in these things. And I guess that may be preempted by a question, what actually led to this engagement in warfare in the Ukraine? Uh, I know there's lots of things being thrown around in the media, but maybe you can just tell us sort of the backdrop of that. Why Why did the conflict happen? Why did Russia engage in, in the war? Well, um, it's no good repeating the uh, talking, talking points, points and yeah. narratives of the West because we know those all too well. But if we want to learn from the other side and you go to Russia today and say, well, what do they say? Um, they point out that back in 1991, when the Soviet Union collapsed and the Warsaw Pact dissolved, they asked of, of the NATO leaders, and especially U.S. Secretary of State Baker, does under President George H. Bush, will NATO expand eastwards? And they were given a clear promise by Secretary of State Baker uh, with the authority of uh, U.S. President Bush at that time saying, we won't take an inch eastwards. Hmm. Not one inch eastwards. Um, and uh, since then, NATO has expanded dramatically in five waves, including Latvia, Lithuania, Estonia, Poland, Hungary, Romania, Bulgaria, all the way through to uh, not just Czechoslovakia and Albania, but actually incorporating Ukraine 
uh, and Kazakhstan to a degree in partnerships. Now people say, oh no, but Ukraine's not a member of NATO. Well, they've got a partnership agreement with them, and mm. and, and Ukraine did travel under under UN flags and having UN patches and fought in Afghanistan alongside the Americans as part of a NATO mm. operation. Not that NATO had any real defensive purpose to be in Afghanistan or bombing. Uh, for that matter, Serbia, uh, to help Muslim terrorists in Bosnia, mind you, uh, nor bombing Libya, which created a tidal wave tsunami of millions and millions and millions of migrants coming from that destabilized country after the colossal amount of chaos caused under the Obama administration and with Secretary of State Hillary Clinton in the Middle East, the so-called Arab Spring, which destabilized Europe to this day with millions of migrants coming from these destabilized countries, uh, the uh, revolutions in Libya, the revolutions in Egypt, the bombing of Syria. All of these things have had an impact, and a lot of this was done under the uh, hmm. guise of, of NATO. Well, I don't know how many people know, but in 2002, Putin came through to NATO summit and applied for Russia to join NATO and was rebuffed from 2002 to 2008. Russia made multiple attempts to join NATO. And imagine having Russia as a Western ally against, for example, let's think Red China, North Korea, and uh, Iran, just as examples. Wouldn't that be great, having Russia as a Western ally? And Russia was looking West in the 1990s and in the early 2000s. But from 2008, it was proclaimed that Ukraine is going to become a member of NATO. This this was an official proclamation from NATO. And immediately, Russian president said, Nyet. And Nyet means Nyet. No way. Ukraine is part of our sphere. In fact, Ukraine and Russia have been so integrated for so long that, uh, in fact, uh, do you know that there's a massive monument in Kiev of uh, Prince Vladimir, uh, who of the Rus, who converted to Christ in 988 AD, hmm. and he ordered everybody in Russia to be uh, baptized. And this was done in Kiev. And there's a statute, a monument there, and that was the beginning of the conversion of the Russians. Hmm. Now, Vladimir Putin sponsored a replica of this magnificent um, monument to Prince Vladimir, after whom he is named, by the way, hmm. um, in Moscow, close to the Kremlin, which has got this colossal cross and this Prince Vladimir holding up the cross because it's symbolic of the Russians coming to Christ in 988 um, AD, which is over a a thousand years ago, a millennium ago. And uh, he has said that when he goes to Kiev, the first place he wants to go is to this monument of Prince Vladimir commemorating the conversion of the Russians. And he's pointed out that the Russian and Ukrainian people's uh, history is one. I mean, they're Slavic people. They've got the same Orthodox faith and they date the conversion from not just the same time, but the same place, Kiev. Mm. Now, bearing in mind that most of Russia is actually not very good for agriculture and Ukraine on the steppes has magnificent, um, they call it the breadbasket of Europe. Mm. And in fact, uh, they they have got the best blackest soil, the best for agriculture. So Ukraine cannot just feed the whole of Russia, it can feed the whole of Europe actually. Ukraine's mm. got phenomenal agricultural potential. Russia's very industrialized, but Ukraine is the agricultural heartland. And so they've seen it from a strategic point of view that, look, all their previous uh, Warsaw Pact allies are now NATO members. NATO seems to have its only purpose uh, to be the enemy of Russia. And he is saying that what is going on now is that America and NATO are putting weapons, even missiles, in Ukraine. And has, in January of this year, sought 
an assurance from President Biden, American President Biden, to assure that America will put no missiles in Ukraine, hmm. which they already had, by the way, um, and was refused an answer. And then even in early February, sought a meeting with Biden to discuss the way out of this impasse and crisis with Ukraine, and Biden refused to meet with him. So, I mean, people need to bear this in mind and that there's a huge amount of weaponry in, in um, Ukraine that is actually causing Russian casualties like British tow anti-tank missiles, hmm. American Stinger missiles. You know, these are high-tech weapons which are causing casualties to them. So you cannot say that Ukraine is neutral, nor can you say that NATO is only defensive, considering what they've been doing hmm. everywhere else. As he points out that even... Um, anti-Russian terrorist separatists such as in Chechnya and so on were supported and sponsored by the CIA. And he said, we know this because uh, we've got double agents who, who we know what's going on there. And uh, so Ru Russia's been de uh, actually undermined. And remember, the old Soviet Union broke up into 15 separate republics hmm. um, in 1991, uh, but that wasn't enough. It's still considered Russia's too big and that, that they need to be counted. And NATO is colossally bigger military-wise, on every mm. level, than, uh, than uh, Russia is. And so Russia is outnumbered on every level. Tanks, aircraft, uh, they've only got one aircraft carrier, for example. You just think how many aircraft mm. carriers is in NATO side. And so the situation here was really aggravated, not just since 2008, but 2014. What happened in 2014? The Obama government was, remember, Obama's president, Biden was vice president, Hmm. And they sponsored the color revolution in Ukraine, which was violent. I mean, a lot of people died. Hundreds of people died hmm. in this riots in the streets, sponsored by the CIA, to topple the elected president of Ukraine, who, by the way, was a personal friend of Vladimir Putin and an ally of hmm. Russia. And they put in someone who's arguably um, a client state. In fact, Ukraine is patently a client state of America to the extent that America... Uh, actually runs illegal biological warfare laboratories in Ukraine that wouldn't be legal to run in America. And so there's a whole lot of biological warfare laboratories, which, by the way, are also under uh, Fauci's administration that they're trying to bundle up and remove out the way before the Russians get there. Mm. And uh, you can imagine that wouldn't be good for them. And there's a lot of strange things going on in Ukraine. That we know about Hunter Biden involved in all kinds of uh, things. There's a lot of corruption going on there. But at any rate... Uh, from the Russian perspective, uh, they are saying this is a reversal of the Cuban Missile Crisis of 1962, which was the last time the world was on the brink of serious nuclear war threat. Hmm. In 1962, when Russia was found, the Soviet Union to be more precise, was found to be planting military bases and missiles in Cuba, America rightly went ballistic and said, under no circumstances, this is a violation of the Monroe Doctrine. No European powers may interfere in the Western Hemisphere, which is fair enough. And, of course, they've applied that to Spain and any other forces, and nobody's allowed to meddle in the Western Hemisphere. There's an American sphere of influence. Well, Russia says this is our sphere of influence, and Ukraine is mm. very tied to us in every way, blood, faith, economy. Uh, you're not putting NATO forces, missiles, and so on in Ukraine. He says... America has put missiles in Poland, in Hungary, right on our border, mm. in our front yard. And Ukraine is just too close to Moscow and so on. And so they have been warning for years saying, don't. Mm. And I think if you, if you look at this, if they could have just given a guarantee, 
no missiles in Ukraine or hmm. Ukraine will not be integrated into NATO. Things like this could have forestalled the war. So obviously an aggressor is to be blamed. Hmm. But provocations are also blameworthy too. And so this isn't a clear-cut case of for no reason at all. One day in the morning, mm. you woke up and decided to attack Ukraine without any provocation and without any warning. There's been a lot of warnings since mm. 2008, and especially since 2014, and there's been a lot of meddling. Mm. And so uh, also from a Russian point of view, if you want to pick it up from uh, the Russian news, is that uh, one of the first things that the Ukrainian presidents did once they took power in 2014, they took power in February 2014, Still within February 2014, they passed laws abolishing minority language rights. In other words, Russian as a recognized language in Ukraine. Refused autonomy requests from Luhansk and Donetsk, where 95% of people are Russian. And, uh, well, you know, the rest is history. Uh, mm. So those parts broke away. So this is awfully avoidable. It looks like there's been a lot of stubborn, thick-headedness and refusal to listen to the other side uh, in the lead-up to this. And this is not a clear-cut case. And uh, as a Christian who's concerned for missions and for the fulfillment of the Great Commission, to see two great Christian countries fighting one another is really heartrending. But to think of the potential of it expanding and involving other forces in Europe mm. and NATO and even America and a possible even nuclear war, that is just too ghastly to even think about. It's just horrific. And I can only pray that they will quickly come to the negotiation table and settle mm. things before any further bloodshed. Mm, absolutely. And as, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. And so as we think about this as Christians, we should always be thinking of that. We want to be those who help sustain peace, who make peace, who bring peace between warring factions in a smaller sense between people who are, who are in conflict, but in a greater sense in nations who are in conflict. We want to be the ones actually helping harbor and helping uh, facilitate that peace. So what would be some of the biblical principles we need to consider when we think about warfare and we, we think about this, this engagement in war? Uh, when is it right to fight? Um, things like that. Well, uh, we, we've got um, the very helpful writings by the great Christian theologian Augustine of Hippo, uh, who's from North Africa, what today would be considered Tunisia, actually. So St. Augustine, who wrote City of God and Confessions and a lot of other great materials, he taught in City of God about the principles of a just war. And this has been recognized throughout church history as, as very helpful. And so this involves three aspects, just ad bellum, just in bello, and just post bellum in Latin. So mm. just ad bellum, the right to go to war, the, the justification to go to war. Uh, number two, just in bello, the right conduct during the war, and just post bellum, the right conclusion to war. So mm. a just war, taking the biblical principles, requires a just cause. Innocent life must be in imminent danger, and intervention must be to protect life. And only duly constituted authorities may wage war. War must be a last resort, only after having exhausted all peaceful means. And there must also be a reasonable probability of success to justify the involvement in a war. Um, if the um, benefits don't outweigh the possible costs and risks mm. and don't even think about uh, as the Lord said, before you go to war, first sit down and mm. consider whether you can complete this. So just conduct in a war requires that it be limited, limited to military targets. So total warfare, uh, scorched earth, that's just like, no, um, mm. can't be considered as Christian. A just war does not endanger civilians. 
It does not damage the environment, nor does it harm animals. The scripture is clear. Soldiers may not even chop down fruit trees during war. When you go to war, do not damage the fruit trees. I mean, why? Because what are you fighting for? You're meant to be fighting for a better future. You destroy yeah. the fruit trees, you're destroying the future. So, you know, the whole idea, the benefits of the war must be proportional to the costs and risks involved. And in any just war, there must be a clear distinction between combatants and non-combatants, hence our insistence on combatants being uniformed and identifiable and so on. And enemy combatants who surrender or who are captured must not be mistreated in any way. Geneva Convention, the Hague's Rules of Warfare have um, tried to um, solidify this in international law. And minimum force, military necessity should be governed by the principle of minimum force Every means must be taken to limit excessive, unnecessary death and destruction. So, you know, for example, um, was it justified for Justin Trudeau to declare a state of emergency normally reserved for war because of some peaceful protest of truckers downtown mm -hmm. who are guilty of parking violations and who, by the way, when the courts ordered them to stop um, honking their horns, stopped honking <laughs> the horns. And they were so peaceful that crime in Ottawa went down while they were there and they were not just cleaning the streets, they were scrubbing the monuments. So about as peaceful as it come. And next thing you know, he declares a state of emergency, brings in and and unleashes physical force on them, you know, smashing windows, uh, bludgeoning people. You know, is that is that force necessary to enforce parking violations? Mm. Because other parts of Canada managed to resolve the blockages of border posts and things like that peacefully and by negotiation and without any recourse to violence. Mm. So, I mean, just going from one example, I, I just think that's funny because Justin Trudeau condemned uh, Vladimir Putin for being totalitarian and authoritarian. We thought, <laughs> well, the pot shouldn't call the kettle black. But, so uh, a just war must be limited. It, there must not be excessive, unnecessary death and destruction. And combatants must use weapons and, and methods of warfare which are not evil and unnecessarily destructive, meaning targeting uh, civilians in particular. A just war must be concluded with a just peace. So revenge is not to be permitted. Life and property are to be respected and the rule of law must be upheld. So having said that, and this is just a summary of a larger dissertation by Augustine, uh, but by these biblical standards... We've got to admit there have been many senseless, unnecessary wars in which neither side was at all concerned with righteousness, where both sides share the guilt. And uh, generally speaking, I mean, we've got to admit that historically, most wars have not been just wars. Hmm. So then how would, how would the Christians on the ground sort of engage in uh, their duty as a Christian to uh, their country? Say there's a Russian believer on one side, there's a Ukrainian believer on the other side. Um, how would they sort of discern, is this right? Is this wrong? Do I do this in defense of my country? Uh, if it's sort of unclear to them. This this is a hard issue. And uh, uh, interestingly, uh, when I was conscripted in South African Army, uh, the first thing we were told in the infantry before they even gave us our rifles, if you are given an illegitimate command, an, an unlawful command, you must disobey it. Mm. You will get into trouble probably initially, but if you obey that command, you will be prosecuted along with the one who gave you that unlawful command. Mm. And so uh, one of us raised hands and said, uh, sir, are you saying that we've got to question whether every law, every command is lawful? And he said, yes. Yes, mm. you must. Indeed, when it comes to the use of force, where, where lives of property are at stake, you must 
uh, 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 discernment. You cannot just say I was following orders and I'm uh, doing uh, what I was told to do. So uh, you cannot plead, well, I was just following orders. There's, mm. there's a moral requirement. So uh, if you are involved in a war, it's important that people with a conscience are involved in, in armies because if all the people with a conscience left the battlefield, it would leave the battlefield and enhance people without a conscience. Mm. And people without a conscience slaughter civilians indiscriminately. They torture and kill captured, surrendered enemy uh, who pose no military threat to them and, and so on. So uh, obviously uh, you would imagine that a Christian soldier in the Ukraine would be concentrated in defending his country. Mm. And he would not be... Um, exceeding that and a Russian who's ordered now to go into the country now I'm sure that many of them are seeing it we're protecting Russians in Ukraine uh, mm. we're trying to protect ourselves as a preemptive strike over uh, the NATO installing anti so they might have some of the but then they must know that okay if you're going in there to destroy some missile sites or some military threat or to protect some Russian nationals in Ukraine that's justified. But if you're ordered to fire in a civilian center or something like this, obviously, as a, you know, you mm. must either have a malfunction, a jam, or uh, there was static and you couldn't hear the command. But I mean, honestly and truly, a, a Christian with a conscience would have to say no to some orders. Um, or he may not want to say so in those words, or he would be um, one way to the gulag, I suppose, or whatever the equivalent is today. Uh, but uh, I got into trouble in the army for asking. Uh, why or varum uh, and uh, for uh, challenging some things and, and there are some times when you can you know if, if you buck the system the military can come down you like a ton of bricks but as a Christian there's some things we just have to have limits on and so I would trust that the Christians there are seeking to be salt and light and to bring some mercy and a grace into a situation that could be so extreme and you know in warfare there have been those people who've shown grace and kindness and and restraints in cases where there could be, uh, uh, just, you know, taken from South African history, uh, do you know that um, at the, uh, in the Anglo-Zulu War, when uh, the Zulus had wiped out, massacred an entire British regiment, the 24th at Battle of Essendon, the worst defeat the British Army ever suffered in Africa, and uh, uh, the British were out for revenge. Well, when they finally defeated the Zulus at Olundi, and they captured the Zulu King Keshweo, there was a Christian officer, who ordered his men to present arms and salute, give a royal salute to the Zulu king as mm. he was marched into captivity and treated him very well. When he got to Cape Town, the commandant general in the castle was uh, General Charles Gordon, a famous Chinese Gordon who, who also is Gordon of Khartoum, the one who died in Khartoum. Mm. Some might have seen the Charlton Heston film of General Charles Gordon. Well, at one time he was commandant general in the Cape. So he's ordered to throw King Keshweo in the dungeon in irons in the mm. castle. Well, he flat refused. He, he treated him with honor and respect as a king, gave him full range to mm. go throughout the castle. He was in no way restrained. His wives were given all the food and whatever they needed to prepare the way he wanted. And he treated him with nothing but respect. Now, he had his orders, but he did what he knew what was, was right. And I think that's the way it's got to be. You've, you've got people who, and he sympathized with them. And by the way, General Gordon got relieved of being Commandant General of Cape because he said that the Zulus were in the right and the British were uh, the aggressors and they had launched an aggressive war and uh, uh, this was not a just war at all. And so you can imagine the British Prime Minister Disraeli fired him on the spot. It's just like, you, you can't have a <laughs> commander like this. He's on the enemy's side. But he was a patriotic Englishman who dared to believe for higher standards for his country. 
Mm. And he believed that his country had behaved dishonorably in his case. And he tried to mitigate it in his personal dealings with the Zulu king, Keshwayo, mm. um, who, by the way, later, uh, he organized for him to go through to visit the queen, Queen Victoria, who gave him back his kingdom and he was returned to Zuland. And there was some restitution done. Uh, so you see, an individual may not have all the power in the army, but we can bring some salt and light and mercy into mm. a situation. Mm. So as Christians, we should really be discerning, is this actually this command I'm given or this thing I'm being told to do, is it in line with what I know to be true of Scripture, what God requires of me? Is it um, just? Is it loving? Is it the right use of force? Because uh, one of the principles in just war theory is proportionality. Is it... Mm -hmm the right amount of force. If someone throws a rock at you, you don't pull out a gun and shoot them. <laughs> I mean, you use the right amount of force to stop the person from doing that anymore. Yes, there needs to be what they call flexible response. So, yeah. for example, um, if you've got, um, just to use the example of lice in the house, you don't burn the whole house down. Yeah. <laughs> now, although you might have been tempted to on occasion. Yeah. <laughs> um, we, what we've got to do is try and target the lice without destroying the whole house or, mm -hmm. and so on. And so this is the point. Um, in fact, there was a great book written on terrorism called The War of the Flea. And as it was pointed out, this being about terrorism, a British officer wrote the book about the conflict in, in Asia. And as he said, a flea cannot kill a dog. But hundreds of fleas can drive that dog crazy to do something mm. that will endanger its life. And the goal of terrorism is to get the power that it's targeting to overreact and disgrace themselves. Hmm. in the eyes of the population, in the, which will then help the terrorists in the goal of the revolutionary winning hearts and minds. So often it's the war of the flea, and we have got to be careful not to overreact because often that is the aggressor's intention. They push you, push you, push you, push you, and the hmm. intention is for you to, to lash out, and then they can justify. And in some sense, can I say, I think there's been an element of this where Russia's been pushed and pushed and pushed, but unfortunately, sadly, they have now launched onto the aggressor side. Now fingers can be pointed from all over the world and say, Russia's the aggressor. And that's the problem. You must not overreact. There are threats. There are legitimate ways of dealing with threats. And uh, the question of whether this was completely legitimate or not uh, is beyond our scope of understanding. I mean, But when all the facts are studied in the future, it'll be seen, was there really a clear and present danger to Russia that required them to respond in this way mm. or have they overreacted? In the eyes of most people in the world, this is an overreaction. Russia's now the aggressor, which could be reacting or overreacting to lots of pr provocation. But this is what mm. ha happens. A bully can push and push and push you. And then you strike the first blow, next thing you're in trouble with the principal. You know, yeah, that's something. Then you're seen as the bully. Exactly. So, so important to keep proportional in how we respond. Hmm. Absolutely. And so, one principle we talk about in just war theory is is it an aggressive war? Is it a defensive war? And there's always wanting to be on the defensive side. We shouldn't be the ones causing wars. Oh, we're going to invade this country just so we can get more territory. We like uh, their real estate over there. Uh, why doesn't America invade Canada? They have some nice nice things up there, nice national parks. No, it's, it has to be a defensive war. Um, and so that's, that's one thing that needs to be thought of here. And so it could be that sometimes when you're taking the offensive move, you're actually doing it because you're actually seeking to defend yourself. So it gets a bit gray at times. Yeah, and that, th th that, th there are times for a preemptive strike. Um, so, uh, but, but that's got to be super limited. Mm. And if it is a preemptive strike, you go out, you take out threats and you get out fast, yeah. which is why I 
uh, at the time when America was claiming to go in for a preemptive, uh, because of weapons of mass destruction, Into which Iraq, were very yeah. hard to find in Iraq. But uh, after being there, I mean, my advice at the time was very publicly, get out fast. Mm. Um, because now you can be seen as a liberator. If you stay any longer, you're an occupier. Mm. And so staying for years longer just turned the whole situation into a far less stable than anything. Next thing, the troops who were once welcomed are now being resented and uh, terrorism rises, resistance rises. So mm. you've got to be very careful. But, um, for example, in the South African Army, we had to do some preemptive strikes into Angola. And there were Soviet build-ups, Cuban build-ups, uh, terrorism uh, being sponsored. They were coming across the border with landmines, limpet mines, rockets. Uh, they were kidnapping whole schools, mm. entire schools of children taken across the border. And case like that, hot pursuit to try and rescue the school children, bring them back. Okay, you're technically invading another country, but it was an incursion. It was temporary. As soon as we had rescued children, got out, or as soon as it wiped out that base where they were preparing for an attack, you turn. But if we stayed and start to settle down there, well, now that's no longer preemptive strike. Mm. So uh, it is it is a difficult thing. But while preemptive strikes can sometimes be justified, the trouble is there's always a temptation, especially when you've got business interesting. Or oh, if you stay there, we can get the contracts for this, that and the other. And mm. before you know it, the budget's gone to the billions, the hundreds of billions, the trillions, and they're still there. And now the local people aren't thanking you for liberating them. Now they're resenting you for being an occupier. Mm. So what should we as Christians do in times of war as those who are civilians and non-combatants? What are our duties in wartime? We've spoken a bit about a Christian soldier and how they can uh, sort of react to um, to commands that are unjust or not in line with Scripture. But what, what about the rest of the Christian population? How do we mm. respond? What does God call us to do during such times of crisis and conflict? Well, our mission grew out of just such a situation. Uh, Frontline Fellowship grew out of a Bible study and prayer fellowship I was running during my two years in the South African Infantry. And we met every night, every night we could for Bible study and prayer. But of course, sometimes you're on all night patrols or you're in, uh, in the bush and there's no way that one could meet. But aside from that, uh, we met every night for Bible study and prayer. And uh, when we met enemy forces and uh, captured enemy and so on, we would ask uh, them what they need. And there were times that we were giving captured Swapo guerrillas or Cubans and other cases water from our water bottles because they were thirsty. Mm. Um, patching them up with um, medical kits and bandages we had in our, uh, there were our medics treating them. There was kindness, sharing the gospel. So these are just practical things you can do. Mm. And while over there, meeting some of the local population in Gola, we would go and ask, uh, what can we do for you? How can we help you? And, and we saw people ask, Biblia, Biblia. I mean, I wanted Bibles. Uh, and many of these people were thin, hungry, starving. Well, of course, we could see they needed food, some need medicine. We'd give them what we could. Uh, but uh, when we could bring out Bibles in their language, then you saw the people weeping, dancing, singing, laughing, mm. falling on their knees, crying, embracing us, kissing us both cheeks in Portuguese style um, for receiving a Bible. So uh, there's definitely a lot one can do to be positive in this situation. But look at a country like Switzerland. Switzerland doesn't bomb anyone, but Switzerland's exporting the Red Cross, uh, one of the greatest humanitarian movements around the world. And they've gone into some of the worst situations and they've helped people, prisoners, prisoners of war, civilians, people on all sides of the conflict. And uh, nobody resents uh, a Christian initiative like that that is going in to help all sides regardless. 
Hmm. And uh, they're not taking sides. They are seeking to bring some humanity into uh, this evil situation. Um, hmm. And then you also think of um, President Teddy Roosevelt back in 1905 when Japan and Russia were at war. The president of America intervened, not militarily, not as a belligerent, not as an ally of either side, but to come in and he, he actually served as a negotiator and brought both Russia and Japan to the negotiation table and negotiate peace and won a Nobel Peace Prize, I think, one back when that meant something. And, uh, <laughs> uh, I mean, how often does a president win a Nobel Peace Prize? And he didn't get it for his color or for bombing people. Uh, he got it for actually stopping a war which was mm. ruinous to both Japan and, and Russia. So uh, there's a lot of things that we could do, and I can't help but but think of America's first president, George Washington, in his final farewell address before leaving the White House. Well, there wasn't a White House. Before leaving being a president at that stage. He warned Americans to uh, avoid entangling alliances and do not get involved in Europe's wars. Hmm. Yeah, America's got oceans on each side. Make use of that. Don't get involved in, in other people's wars. Well, if that had been adhered to, like, with Teddy Roosevelt, not getting involved in a Russian-Japanese conflict, but rather negotiating a peace that benefits everyone without any benefit accruing to America. Just mm. Now, it would be so nice if more countries followed the example of Switzerland of armed neutrality. Be armed, be ready if you want peace, prepare for war, um, peace through superior firepower, well prepared to defend themselves, but they won't be the aggressor. They will defend. Very few people know that during the Second World War, Switzerland fully mobilized. They had something like an 85% mobilization of their male members of, mm. their, of their country. And they actually fought engagements to preserve their neutrality. They shot down British, German, American, Italian aircraft that violate the airspace. They looked after tens of thousands of belligerents from all sides, especially American airmen who had been flying over mm. from Italy to bomb Germany, getting shot down and crash landing in Switzerland. They cared for many belligerents who came into the area and they wouldn't let them go until the war was over in accordance with Geneva Convention rules. They treated them well, but they were effectively under um, arrest, so to speak. Um, and Switzerland engaged in even artillery duels at some places where, where there was encroachment on their place. They were being threatened by the Italians, the French, the Germans at different times because they were in, in the middle and Without them being very vigilant, they would have lost their independence. Now, that was a total defensive war with no intention of, of uh, causing grief or invading mm. others. But Switzerland has the authority to be able to care for other countries and to be involved and be a negotiator and a place for negotiations mm. often. How many times have people met in Geneva to negotiate a peace treaty? Uh, because they have armed neutrality. Now, if more countries followed that example of we're not going to join a side, but we are going to be seek to be friends with all, but we'll defend our own. Hmm. And I would think that would be a much better case than arms races where different nations are then using other places as uh, proxies. And uh, when I look at what's going on over there in Ukraine, I feel for the Ukrainian people. I feel like they've been used and abused, hmm. and not just by the ones invading them right now, but by their allies who, by the way, set them up and aren't exactly helping that much now that they are in the firing hmm. line. And I... I do you think that uh, this this is an example of, of where aggressive meddling overseas, just meddling in other people's affairs, organizing revolutions to topple governments and putting your own people in is, is not the way to make good friends and neighbors. So uh, as Christians, there's a lot we can do. We must pray. We must 
certainly put the word of God into the situation. Uh, medical care is very practical, very uh, Christian. Do you know that we've heard from our friends in Ukraine is a complete dearth of Bibles. There's been a run in all the Christian shops and Bible societies. There's not a Bible to be had in the shelves in Ukraine. All the people are seeking a word of God. Obviously, they're in crisis. And hmm. in this time, there's a great time not to send bombs to Ukraine, but to send Bibles to Ukraine. Not to hmm. send the Marines, but to send in the missionaries to hmm. to be there because that's where they need it. And I think as Christians, when we are on the ground helping the people where they need putting feet on the streets, boots on the ground, that's love and action. And this is a good time for us to do it. So when we're praying, can I call on our brethren not just to pray for Ukraine? Of course, that's high priority. Pray for the Christians in Russia too. Mm. Pray for the soldiers on both sides. This is not a case of evil people on one side and innocent people on the other. There are Christians on both sides, and both sides have got their case and their cause, and they can articulate good rational reasons why they're doing what they're doing. Um, it's better for us to stay out of the conflict as far as belligerents go, but let's see what we can do to be of practical love and action for the people on the ground on both sides. Hmm. And I've heard of missionaries who are on the ground in the Ukraine, and people have asked them, are you, are you going to flee the country? And they said, well, how could we? This is one of the most important times for us to be here, yes. to be serving the, uh, serving the people and sharing the gospel and being a light for Christ now, because mm. people are so open to the gospel. I mean, if everyone's to leave, then, then what happens? <laughs> Where's the spiritual guidance that's going to come to these people in this time? And so we're grateful for the missionaries who are there on the ground and the faithful Christian believers who are there serving the people. Bad times are good for spiritual work. Mm. Absolutely. So how can we, in our last couple of minutes, how can we pray effectively for those who are involved in this conflict, such as the Ukrainians and the Russians? We've spoken a lot about the different aspects of just war and how Christians can get involved or what Christians should do in warfare and those who are non-combatants. But how should we intelligently pray mm. into this? Well, if you've got an Operation World book in on your shelves or in your college library, uh, get it out, turn to Ukraine, turn to Russia, pray through there because that's the best intercessory handbook. You See what you can find on Operation World website, operationworld.org, I think it is. And uh, I've also given a presentation on understanding the Ukraine crisis. Just recently, there's an audio, there's a video, there's a PowerPoint that you can find on the www.frontlinemissionsa.org website. So frontlinemissionsa.org. Go onto the website, you'll see we've got audio, video, PowerPoint. And if you go onto the Henry Morton Stanley School of Christian Journalism, that's the HMS School of Christian Journalism, uh, .org website, you'll find articles on understanding the Ukraine crisis and other related things that, that'll have links to audio and video to that too. Uh, so I do think it's important that we understand what's going on and that we pray. Operation World certainly is a wonderful resource for that. And let's see who we can mobilize. If we can get our congregations to pray, our families mm. to pray, uh, let's incorporate this around a meal table uh, to pray, not just thanking God for our food, but praying for the Christians in Russia and Ukraine at this time. And also that that sane heads would prevail, that, that instead of just mm. belligerent war talk and, and antagonistic, volatile incitement, uh, we would see Christians trying to be peacemakers. It would be so good if the presence of Russia and Ukraine could come together, as has already been suggested, on the border of uh, Belarus, between Belarus and Ukraine, where they could meet and talk about any peace negotiation now could prevent a river of blood being flowed. Mm. And the earlier you finish a conflict, the better. This conflict uh, um, broke out less than a week ago. And mm. uh, the sooner it comes to a conclusion, the, the better for all concerned. The longer war drags out, the worse the wars get 
and the more people suffer. Not mm. only soldiers, but sadly civilians too. So, um, yes, I think that's important. Intercession, uh, informed intercession, be informed, be involved. Uh, there's always something we can do. Maybe you know some missionaries or churches that are involved there. Uh, maybe there's something your church or mission can do in sending, whether it's medicines or people or Bibles through to the Ukraine. And if all you've got is some contacts um, that you can communicate with by the internet, do that too. Although I believe a lot of cyber wars undermining the yeah. networks. But still, um, we should try because there may be alternative systems that set up that one can communicate through too. But let's see what we can do to encourage the people over there and to be a practical and loving support to them. Well, thank you so much for joining us tonight. We hope this has helped you think more clearly through this world crisis that we face today in our world and how we respond as Christians, how we think biblically on this issue. And as Proverbs twenty five twenty six says, it says, like a muddied spring or a polluted well is a righteous man who gives way to the wicked. And we certainly don't want to give way to the wicked, nor do we want to be ones given into wickedness. Rather, we want to be, as Christ said, the peacemakers, for we shall be called sons of God. Thank you so much for joining us. Good night and God bless.